Welcome back to Masters of Divinity. It's been a minute since we last recorded. I think our last call, according to my records here, was on the 3rd of March? Yeah, so almost a month ago. Almost a month. Um, When we talked about... I believe we were talking about dunking on Twitter. That's it, yeah. Yeah, dunkaroos. And, 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 you know, and as a result of our uh, episode, it's just gotten better, um, <laughs> right? People have heeded our, our, our words, and there's no longer dunking going on. There's no longer... No more. There's no controversies. We uh, we fixed it. We fixed we the did. internet. I mean, Matt huh? Gates is completely innocent. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? You can be sexy at any age, <laughs> which should be the Florida State motto, and I agree. What was it? Um, <laughs> no, uh, cannot, what was it? Be sexy to the age. When I was on a youth trip once, uh, when I was <clears throat> when I was serving as a youth minister um, at my first parish, some of the teenagers. I had this. Uh, it was very interesting uh, youth group experience because it was rare in my experience in that it was all girls. Yeah. And like, it was just it was it, and like youth trips were so awkward because, like. <laughs> You know, they had to like partner up with another church, uh-huh. and I like was just by myself. Anyway, <laughs> um, but I, I bring that up because um, what, we're we're at SeaWorld once, and um, one of the girls was telling me about how some guy had told her, you know, AJ nothing but a number or whatever, and I, she had the best reply to that. She said, "Oh yeah, well then jail's just a place." <laughs> nice, that's good. I like that. Oh, that is a clapback of, of clapbacks right there. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Listen, I know, I know, we were above dunking, but I just, I need to say it now that we have, I know that I have a microphone on my face. He looks like Quagmire. Have you watched SNL? No. That's uh, um, Pete Pete Davidson played him this past weekend, okay. and he keeps, oh, he keeps awesome. like randomly saying "giggity." <laughs> that was fantastic. Now that Pete Davidson, he surprises yeah. you. He does. He's a that, that that he's a rap scallion. That one. Like throughout the week, I just don't like him. But then when I see him on SNL, he makes me laugh. I gotta admit, <laughs> um, just has that effect on me. Um, yeah. So yeah, we you know most podcasts try to break the internet. We fixed it. Problem solved. We did. We fixed it. Yep. <laughs> um, but uh, we we hope you enjoyed um, in our absence our our uh, our our first clip show. Uh, did you listen to it, Chuck? No, I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet. Oh, you got to listen to it. You got the chance. It's it's, it's uh, fun. It's fun. I mean, it is. You know, it's, it's, I mean, it, I, you know, from what I can gather, it's just like the uh, the penultimate episode of Seinfeld or uh, <laughs> the what the season one finale of Star Trek: The Next Generation. <laughs> I didn't. I didn't know they did a clip show at the <clears> end of season one. But I guess I would. Just one of the one of the season finales of Star Trek: The Next Generation is a clip show. Okay. All right. Which is hilarious. Um. Well, no, it was it was good. You know, I had fun making. I had very little editing, so there's a nice few seconds where you're looking for candy to eat. <laughs> so, 
Yes, I love it. I think audiences really responded to that. Um, no, it was good. And, you know, uh, it, it, it was good to hear Matt again. On, yeah. on the podcast, uh, I mean, he was kind of losing his mind because we had to we had to watch the Velocipastor trailer, but um, uh, <laughs> it was good. Yeah, to I was kind of, actually kind of was wondering if he was going to wind up showing up for this uh, little series we're doing. But look, I'm 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 kind of morphing into Matt a little I, bit. Uh, you got Matt hair. My head and yeah, I got cool glasses. <laughs> you, you you're the the, the shaved head and, and glasses guy now. So, oh, man. so I've I've got to pick up the mantle of being a, a quaffed beard and uh, long hair. I should have, I, you know, I, I you know when I was cutting my hair, I could have done the undercut, and yeah. I could have like Carl Lentz, you know. <laughs> oh no! Oh gosh, the visuals. You should do it sometime. You should try it sometime. Just it'd be it would be fun. Just go full hype hype priest. Though my uh, my mother, my mother saw a picture of me wearing these glasses with a. With a with a um, Panama hat on, yeah. <laughs> and she pointed out that I, I I carry a bit of a resemblance to the guy whose face melts off at the end of Raiders of the Lost Ark. Oh, okay. His name was Took, I believe, or Took. Tut, Tot, Tot, Tot. Well, that's yeah. a, that's a, and there's a little, that's a yeah. little uh, that's a little gimme for uh, for our for our good for our, our number one fan. Yes, yes, our oh. uh, our, our, our our lone patron, um, Canadian. Um, well, Which means we accept we accept Canadian quarters. Hey, <laughs> we do. This is our first episode under our new hosting service. Right. If you haven't gotten the memo yet, um, <clears throat> and you listen to us on SoundCloud, you may have noticed you can't listen to us. <laughs> For those of you who are who are exclusively listening to us on SoundCloud, uh, we apologize, but we had to we had to get out of there. Um, just really just a waste of money. Um wasn't really doing us any favors uh the analytics i didn't like customer service what customer service what the, who do you talk to just robots um so Rappers. yeah so we uh we switched to anchor which is a free hosting site and i learned is the second worst podcast hosting site on the internet the first really? being soundcloud so we're, we're we're moving up man all right <laughs> One click up, but uh, no, that's pretty cool. On our way like, to Earwolf, huh? On our way to Earwolf, <laughs> we're almost there. Um, but yeah, Anchor is is kind of weird because you can't like I don't think you can like go to Anchor and look for the podcast. Um, but we're still available. We're all podcasts are available, so it was pretty seamless transition. The only difference is that our artwork has a little Anchor FM logo, a little squiggly line, which is. Yeah, whatever it is, what it is. So um, uh, maybe a little, 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 little insider, inside baseball. I'm not inside baseball. A little announcement, I guess. Um, if you if you're trying to go back and listen to uh, audio only episodes of the podcast via our website, they're all still SoundCloud links. I've got to go through every single one of those babies and replace them with an anchor uh, link. So. Uh, just bear with us. Uh, if you just want to listen via like browsers or whatever, um, Spotify is probably the best for Anchor. Um, but going forward, there'll be like Spotify links for the audio only podcast. And of course, we're always available on YouTube. Uh, if you want to see our faces, uh, watch us mug the camera multiple times, and uh, you know, <laughs> we'll do you know all, all the YouTube stuff, right? That's uh, 
you know, yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, there's there's that. We got that out of the way. But this <clears throat> month, Chuck and I decided that we are going to do something we've actually wanted to do since the beginning of this podcast, which is cover a breadth of Jesus movies. And as you have probably noticed, this episode is about Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Should we tell them what other movies we're going to do, or should we just keep that a surprise? No, let's, go, let's let them know. Let's tell them. Cool. <clears throat> so on this episode, we'll be talking about The Passion of the Christ, as you know. Next week, we'll be talking about the Jesus film, right? The Jeremy Sisto starring... It, it, oh, is it? I didn't know that. I'm pretty sure. Pretty sure I'm thinking... I might be thinking of an older Jesus film. Oh, that stars Jeremy Jeremy Sisto. Um, the Jesus, uh, no, not the Jesus roles, um, not the Jesus and Mary Chain. That is a Jesus. good band, though. I would I would recommend them for this month. Yeah, yeah, I, I agree. Um, uh, maybe it's just called Jesus. Let's see, because Jesus. I was, no, thinking of, Superstar. I was thinking of an older film that like that that missionaries take with them to like Peru or whatever and like they have it on like a sixteen millimeter reel and project it onto a screen up in the mountains for villages and stuff. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to find. Um let's just say Jesus Film Project, is that it? I think I mean that's the one I was thinking of. Were you thinking of a different one? Because I didn't know Jerry Masisto was in that. The Jesus Film Project, founded by Bill Bright. That sounds about right. It's to distribute the 1979 film Jesus, not only in English, but also in many of the world's languages with the stated goal of reaching every nation, tribe. Yeah, so this is the one you're talking about. Yeah. I think. Is that the one you were suggesting? Because I, I, didn't, I didn't know. Uh, yeah, I'm going to do some research. Okay. All right. Well, there will be a Jesus film next week that is... Mostly for like f w with with the intention of of um, proselytizing, you know, uh, yes. evangelical. Yeah. This is the uh, one purposes. from Campus Crusade. Yeah, so whichever one that was, uh, we'll we'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, um, and then after that, our, our third one of the series, and we'll in the month with this one, uh, will be Martin Scorsese's The Last Temptation of Christ, um, which I'm really excited to talk about because I haven't actually watched that movie in over a decade at least and I know I, I remember very little because I think I just had it on as like background noise and um, I have never seen it and I'm excited because we're talking about Chuck's favorite filmmaker Martin Scorsese um, did you know that The Last Temptation of Christ has a criterion, condi uh, a, a criterion condition a criterion edition Chuck, did you know sure that? It has a criterion condition too. <laughs> um, I, you know, I, it does not surprise me. But yeah. you know what? It's a film that that warrants a criterion. Much True. like, much like, a film featuring another <laughs> great servant of God named Bill Murray. <laughs> Some uh, would say probably the best servant of God, uh, who um, you know made a little film where he was in Japan with Scarlett Johansson called Lost in Translation that. Mm -hmm. I'm telling you, I, I really want I want to create a website or something that is just like at the top is a ticker, old school website, old. Like, there's a ticker and it's like number of days that 
Lost in Translation has not had a Criterion release. <laughs> and then under that is a list of every movie that got a Criterion release before. Yeah. Fast Times yep. at Ridgemont High just got <clears throat> their, theirs released recently. I mean, for crying out loud, I just bought Godzilla yeah the Showa films beautiful edition by the way beautiful box set 1975 beautiful huge beautiful book collection but in this movie in this collection the criteria there's a criterion treatment for some of the worst movies ever made godzilla's revenge son of godzilla it, it, it'll come out man someday it's just you know it, there, there's so <clears throat> much there's so much crap you have to go through to get these editions you know depending on the movie it really is like a movie by movie basis and it's like it's all dependent on like where all the rights are wrapped up in and like how well it does already on its own, all that kind of stuff. But I, yeah. I, I think that someday I have a feeling every movie <clears throat> will be a Criterion film. So I also realize too, I'm sure that there's something to do with the music rights that might be an issue because like it features music from like My Bloody Valentine, which I think is always in some kind mm. of weird state of ownership. Maybe I mean, and, and it could be something like that. You know, you just never know. You know, they have a good relationship with, like, Sofia Coppola and stuff. Like, The Virgin Suicides is on Criterion yeah. for first movies. So, it's just it's just a matter of time. They'll do it. I'm sure they will. It's, uh, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I, I, I would love to see, like, even, like, Eternal Sunshine to get a Criterion release. Because uh, I have it on DVD. It's not, 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 not looking great. A yeah. standard definition version. But uh, we'll see. But that's not what we're here to talk about. No, we're here to talk about Mel Gibson's Mel Gibson uh, passion, the the passion of the Christ. I want to point something out because I don't know if you remember it, Chuck. That movie came out <clears throat> February. Uh, I forgot the exact date. It was February 2004. Uh, our freshman year at PBA. Yes. And I don't know if you remember, but we saw it together. 
we did. I do remember that. But this was a kind of a Smash Mouth situation because we didn't we didn't see it together, but we were part of the like screening event that happened. Right. Because Passion, the Passion of the Christ had a had a weird rollout. Like it it, it it hit theaters, but it was heavily heavily marketed to churches and ministries and all kinds of like special screenings for like you know evangelical just churches all all across the board. Yeah, I can't remember. I can't remember if I saw it with our with that PBA cohort. I can't remember if I saw it with that. If I saw it there first, or if I saw it. No, I totally did because I think we got like a special advanced showing or something, didn't we? Yeah, we did. Um, and then we and then went it was like later. It was like later that weekend. I went and saw it with a church in Fort Pierce that I was working with. So like I, okay. I've seen the movie so many times. Yeah, and I, I know that that's that particular screening was just all students. Yeah, uh, because like all my friends were there. <laughs> um, and then we had we we went <clears throat> to a special after the movie discussion. About right. the film. And I, I remember, I think that's like the first time you and I started hanging out. That's right. Yeah. And it was interesting because, yeah. like, my first impression of you were dropping knowledge on things I didn't know. And one thing that still sticks, that still sticks out to me that you brought up that I didn't know that it's, I still thought of when I saw this movie was that you were talking about, like, how children are presented as, like, uh, a supernatural force and when it comes yeah. to, like, Catholic art or Renaissance art. Yeah. That's interesting. Um, but yeah, that's, that's what I remember. I mean, do you, the fervor around this movie in our own circles of the church was insane. I remember there being a panel, um, at our, at our college, a panel of people before the movie came out of people who just saw it and you could ask them questions. That was it. (laughs) Like, hey, I saw the movie. Talk to me. <laughs> it's so weird. And I went, too. Um, and it, it, I don't know. They just talked about the movie. <laughs> yeah. I I feel like I was in one of those panels. Like, I like really? I hosted. I, I feel like. Didn't they do, like, student-led ones? I feel like I did one of those. I don't know. The one I went to wasn't students. They were all, like, yeah, they were all pro- professionals or professors and. I guess. And then every year they would, every year at, um, remember when there was, um, what was the first Baptist, uh, West Palm had that youth house. Remember that like really decrepit building that they used to do like coffee houses in and stuff. And we, they would, every year they would do like a big showing of it in there. And I actually kind of took a date. (laughs) Perfect date movie. Just great. Um, Just really gets everyone in the mood. But yeah, dude. I mean, you're talking about. I was just reading stuff about this in preparation for our episode. I was I, I was sort of amazed at and forgot about the intense evangelical um, fervor around this movie. And it's and it, and, it, and it took me. I had to sit and think about it a little bit today. I realized I because I, I couldn't appreciate it at the time that I because I wasn't evangelical myself. But that what a weird thing that the evangelical church gravitated to this movie so strongly because it is such a Catholic movie. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, because I can remember when I saw it, I had dated I had dated long term um, a Roman Catholic girl. And so as a result of like going to church and being exposed to stuff with her, like I knew at the Stations of the Cross and stuff that the evangelicals know nothing about. And so like when people were saying things like, oh, well, who's that? Like, what's the deal with that woman who was? 
you know, the G, you know, gave Jesus that rag to wipe his face off. Like, oh, St. Veronica. And they're like, what? I'm like, oh, it's in tradition in the Stations of the Cross. And I was like, yeah, the, the whole movie is basically the Stations of the Cross set into motion. And they're like, what, what's the Stations of the Cross? And so I had to like. I was definitely one of those guys, but yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't know any of this. Huh? I didn't know any of this when I saw it. So yeah, yeah. Yeah, because it's like, yeah, like, well, Jesus falls a lot of times. Well, yeah, because in the Stations of the Cross, he falls like three times. And there's stations for each of the falls and all this kind of stuff. But anyway, yeah. yeah. Um, and so, um, we got such a, such a Catholic movie. And the more I learn, the more I've learned about it, the deeper cut, like the deeper the cuts of it being a Catholic movie. Mm-hmm. So for the evangelical world to have gravitated to it so strongly just sort of amazes me. Well, you know, it's it's because it was just heavily marketed. Like that was intentional on, on you know, I think Icon and New Market. Who, mm-hmm. Icon is, of course, Mel Gibson's company that, that made the film. And New Market is like the, the their big distributor. And their big thing was like, we're just going to do like a PR blitz on all these churches. And we're going to give them all access to this movie. You can buy tickets at your church. People were advertising. They were showing. I remember seeing trailers of the movie like every Sunday morning. Like before, yeah. before a service would start at some random church. Um, it was, I mean, it was, it was, it was evangelical Star Wars. It really was. And yeah, because I was thinking the other day as I was, I was driving, thinking about this episode, and I was thinking about how, um, you know, churches, particularly the evangelical church, gravitated to so strongly, right? Because this was like the first time that it was like, aside, because I mean, obviously there was so much, there was so much controversy around Last Temptation of Christ, which, you know, we're going to talk about. Yeah. Um, so this was sort of like the first time that evangelicals and Catholics, I guess, but really mostly evangelicals felt like, a big Hollywood production story for you know, them. Yeah. Bible story. Right. Like in our lifetime. Right. Because, you know, the last big thing was probably, you know, um, the last biblical epic was, um, was probably 10 commandments. Right. I mean, like it just wasn't something, huh? Ben her. Yeah. Well, but that's not really a biblical epic, right? That's just an epic film, but like, no, I mean, it know, is, it, well, based, it's got like big movies based on the Bible. Were, I mean, I guess there was the greatest story ever told and stuff like that. But I mean, I don't know. I guess it just it this this felt like of our you know that it, you know there was, but there was definitely an element where people sort of were like, we finally made it. Christians have made it. Oh yeah, I mean that's how I felt. Yeah, like we 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 we. Mel Gibson. Mel Gibson is is, is, is Jesus. Yeah, Mel Gibson is is Christian Spielberg. We got one, guys. We finally got. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um. So yeah, I, I just uh, I just want to point that out. There was a huge fervor around. There was a massive hype train uh, that you know it was just like a the countdown of the century that movie coming out. And then when it came out, uh, I do remember watching and being like, "Yeah, I, I know all this." So I just remember being kind of swept up in the filmmaking of it all and just being like, "Okay, so it's taking something I already know and then like making it enormously cinematic." Yeah. And then there were so many like stories going on from like behind the scenes where like Jim Caviezel was struck by lightning, um, stuff like that. So it's like they were just I mean, if you want to know what it was like to hype up a movie before like social media, like look into that. Like there's like a whole um, oh, there's lots of articles written about it and stuff. It was it was it was it was crazy. It was crazy. Yeah, it was I mean, in a way, it was almost like that. It, it's almost like they took the successful marketing approach of like the matrix and then just like ramped it up right among a, a very willing consumeristic, uh, uh, so, you know, culture of people. Yeah. Um, and I remember too, this came out, this came out like less than a year after the gospel of John, which was another film adaptation 
that I remember when I first heard of that, I, I confused it. I thought that this was, I was like, wait, is that the Mel Gibson movie? And I went and saw it and it was okay. Um, it was long. Um, but like you're saying, yeah, there was definitely like a gospel of John was a movie that took like the actual gospel of John and tried to use that as a screenplay. Yeah. And, and I remember reading a review in like the Orlando Sentinel at the time that said like, you know, the, these words on it actually had a pretty impact, a pretty profound impact on me and the idea of adaptation of screen of screenwriting and stuff, which was like, you know, these words on the page, they don't, they don't tell you like what people are feeling or emoting at the time. That's, that's all the director's vision. And so there's the limitations of just using, you know, just trying to film Bible pa passages that there's always some degree of interpretation that has to go on. And so I remember reading that and then seeing the passion of Christ and just being like, well, the, the, the elevation of the art mm -hmm. of, of cinema with this movie was just a, such a different experience. This was not someone trying to recreate a bit like, like, the story as it appears on the page of the Bible. This was somebody giving an adaptation, right? This is a cinematic adaptation. I remember telling people afterward that it, to me, it felt like it would be the best way to describe this movie as a call out, like the gospel according to Mel Gibson, because <laughs> yeah. it, 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 it's not beholden to any one biblical text. It's right. one man's, you know, take on it. Um, and presented uh, that way. And, you know, now when I think more about it, I think it's probably, it's more akin to like a, a film version of like a Renaissance art or something, right? Like he's not trying, he's not trying to be historically accurate and he's not, you know, he's trying to be true to what is presented on the script, the page of the scriptures, but at the same time doing it in a way that stands on its own as a piece of cinema rather than, you know, yeah, just that, retelling the Bible. Yeah. And it's also, I mean, it's interesting when you sort of take into account of when it came out which is the early 2000s and big studios are just starting to experiment with like um you know taking ip that people already love and just like what if we just put it on the screen are they going to show up you know so you've got marvel starting to rev that engine with like x-men and then spider and the two spider-man movies came out around the same time spider-man 2 actually came out after this movie um, so it was already like there's that and there's also the the sort of prestige around these epic period pieces that are happening because Gladiator had really hit it big. It was a major box office success and won a bunch of Oscars. And so everyone was like jumping on like the period movie. Train. Right. Right. Um, especially if it's like accurate and gritty and, you know, but more cinematic and not so like baroque right and you know, lord of the rings ha had i think the return of the king come out yet i don't think it had come out well actually maybe it did I think, yeah yeah it, they had just wrapped return of the king or, or they had just uh return of the king had just come into theaters around christmas time i think 2003 yeah so it's just a yeah. few this is just a few months after return of the king um, so like, yeah, this is definitely, it, it, you know, of its time and the sort of post, um, filmmakers still get to do their visions before, like everything's just an IP where it's like, they're both kind of informing each other, you know? So it's, it's, yeah. an, it's an interesting time in filmmaking and the whole, uh, and, and, and the, like the studio system and stuff. It's, it's I consider this to be sort of like the ground zero of what we have today, this, this right. time, this early 2000s period. 
Well, and the fact too that you know Mel Gibson had to he funded this out of his own pocket because he couldn't find right. production company willing to touch it, right? And so this idea of that sort of you know the the the, the auteur idea, right? He's yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there's I mean you know he. <laughs> And I mean, he also had trouble distributing it too. That's how that's how they got right. to Newmarket, and you know they're distributing through churches and stuff. Um, because I mean, you know, because it's he even said like it's in like three different dead languages <laughs> and uh, subtitles, and uh, it's brutal. So yeah, it took a big risk. Um, so let me ask you now. Re- well, yeah, you didn't rewatch it, but. <laughs> I'm just curious about like what is your what is your 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 thoughts on on the passion of the Christ as as a film? Um as a film I think that it's like I I think what I already said it it, it makes me think of renaissance art. Okay. Um you know I think about you know being somebody who's really into the tradition of Christian iconography um and and art right this stuff was all produced for illiterate people to be able to understand and, and experience these stories in the bible and that there's always some degree of interpretation and even sometimes ulterior motive in these things right there's not only is it trying to not only like anytime you look at a piece of renaissance art not only is it trying to like unveil this the gospel story but there's usually some kind of crit- critique or something going on behind the scenes right like um is it uh in the garden of earthly delights the the yannick is it yannick vanek whatever his name is um uh famous triptych i think that's the one where where they show hell uh there's like faces of like pope urban and other people who like this guy was mad at, he snuck into these pieces of art, right? Michelangelo snuck the faces of some people into his art that he wanted to uphold and others that he wanted to vilify. Um, you know, so, you know, so they're, so they're not only are they unveiling the story at the time, but they're doing it in such a way that offers a commentary in the world at, for the person who's viewing this piece of art. Right. So in a lot of ways, this feels like that to me, it's a movie that is meant to unveil a story in a cinematic visual language, right? Probably, I mean, you know, again, I've not seen Last Temptation, but Last Temptation is also, I think, of a piece of this idea. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas I think what Scorsese is trying to do, from what I understand of Last Temptation, is a little bit different than what Mel Gibson's trying to do. Yeah, uh, Mel Gibson is Mel Gibson is trying to basically create like a cinematic illuminated manuscript. Like he's trying to give us uh, a visual version of this story and, uh, drawing from a wide range of traditions to make it happen. Um, which I think is really, is very fascinating and biblical scholar approach like I have, um, makes it, makes it something that I find immensely interesting. Um, that being said, I also think a lot about the controversies around it, which I think oh, yeah. you know we, you have to talk about. Talk about this movie, yeah. and also the question of the question of it of whether or not it fetishizes the violence of Jesus, which is something that tends to be very common in the Roman Catholic world, is fetishizing Jesus's violence to the expense to the often to the expense of the the glories of the of the empty tomb. 
Um, I mean, for instance, this movie this movie depicts Satan experiencing defeat at Jesus's death, but classical Christian theology would say that Satan's defeat would have happened at the resurrection. Hmm. That Satan would have, like Western Christian tradition would have had more that Satan experienced a momentary sense of victory at the death of Jesus, but it's the resurrection that made him realize that his victory was hollow and he had been duped or whatever. See that I was thinking about that Chuck because while I, I, I noticed that like, and I'm kind of wondering if maybe Mel Gibson put that defeat of Satan in there just because like, I got to put it in there um, yeah. because you know, Satan is sort of woven into the story from like the first scene to the last and I'm, I, 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 my critical mind for a moment was like, Satan is like supposed to know what's going on. Why is he like relishing every second that's happening? Like, shouldn't he be like really worried? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and then like, and then they show him being defeated and upset. I'm like, you, you knew what was happening. I don't, I don't really understand the progression of that, of that particular character within the confines of this movie. Um, yeah. But I mean, I that 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 would make more sense uh, the way you describe it if he if he experienced defeat at the resurrection because he is relishing every moment that it's happening and then oh he dies well he wasn't expecting him to die like I don't or he yeah. wasn't expecting what would happen when he would die he should know um, but yeah I don't know that's just something I noticed that yeah, was sort of inconsistent yeah because the, the 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 classical Christian image is that Jesus dies and then on Holy Saturday. Holy Saturday is the day that's meant to be focused around. We just came off of Easter, by the way. So this is as I was recording, <laughs> yeah, so this all fresh in my mind. Um, and uh, Holy Saturday is the day after Good Friday, um, which is the, um, um, you know, it's a Good Friday, remember the crucifixion. Holy Saturday is the day we remember the burial and Jesus' death. But it's also the day where the church somewhat celebrates the, the event that is called the harrowing of hell which is the belief that Jesus descended into hell and then he busted open the gates of hell so that those trapped, those trapped in hell have the opportunity to leave. Right. Which, which goes back to, to happen in the afterlife and all this stuff we talked about, which but, is apparently supposed to happen in the sequel, by the way. Nice. Um, yeah, yeah that's right. They're working on a sequel. Yeah. Um, I believe it's but, called, uh, the passion of the Christ Two: the sequel. <laughs> I'm surprised you didn't do like the legend of like Judas's gold or something. <laughs> the legend of Judas is over. <laughs> oh no! I'm, uh, my mother should not listen to this podcast. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, so this idea then that that's where Satan experiences defeat, right? Because the idea is like, oh, I've got him. He's in hell yeah. with me, right? Like that's again, that's the classical kind of more Latin Western church somewhat orthodox tradition too but this idea that you know jesus is there and satan's like i've got you i've won and then it's like eh, not really i got the lock pick and you know it's it's all over for him yeah, yeah so like the, the depicting of satan's defeat at the crucifixion even presented in the movie itself does not make a whole lot of sense because yeah. that's the satan's whole thing is mocking jesus and all of this right and i don't know just no maybe, foresight that Satan, you know, that's what got him in trouble in the first place. Just, I mean, unless like it's, I would have to pay more attention to it, but does like, does that happen right after Jesus says like, father, forgive them? I don't remember. I, I, I can't place it. There's a, there's like a whole montage around yeah, that if, part. So yeah. Yeah. Cause the temple is destroyed. They show that. 
Well, broken, not destroyed, but yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But um, I, I, I do... Oh, no, go ahead. Whatever you were going to say. I don't no, no I, I've said what I need to say. Okay, cool. Well, I watched this last night on uh, Pluto.tv. Here's the thing. I love Pluto TV. It's great. It's a great service. I love these free streaming channels that just show nothing but like Family Ties or I Love Lucy or it's Star Trek. One, They have one for Star Trek now, too. It's just all Star Trek all the time. Um, they also happen to show movies. Uh, the catch is, of course, is that you have to watch ads. There's no turning them off. There's nothing you can subscribe to to, to, to shut them off. It's a free service, and it's free because of ads. And the first ad that showed up, it's the it's the first scene of the film. Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. I should say an olive garden. That's <laughs> what it is, right? The Gethsemane is the giant olive press. That's what a Gethsemane is. Yeah. Right. So the entire scene plays out. And before, when when they arrest Jesus and they escort him out of the garden, there's a scene where one of the guys escorting him takes a chain and just like whips Jesus in the back. Right as that guy whips Jesus with the chain, it cuts to an Olive Garden commercial. And it just felt... <laughs> be breadsticks and salad. <laughs> it's like, I'm getting... You've got this, you know, the melancholic ancient wailing music going. You've got this masterful cinematography, this very moody, moody scene happening. And all of a sudden, hey, when you hear your family... <laughs> I'm learning about the Asiago chicken parmesan. <laughs> they got new specials on tortellini. Get the never-ending salad. And, you know, it happened a lot throughout this movie. <laughs> like, just... And they're all Olive Garden commercials. Every single one. Great. I, like, I, like, when you told me this, and I said, well, it actually did happen in a Olive Garden. Which, I, you know, it's... That adds it's to it, but... You know, and I, the connections are great, right? Well, he was like, not family when he was in that Olive Garden. <laughs> Judas was not family, and like, uh, and then in like, fact, when he kissed Jesus, Jesus was like, "You're not family." <laughs> well, and then the, I just I just make associations with the unlimited breadsticks and like the communion bread, and yeah. you know, it's it's uh, yeah. Oh I, man, uh, yeah. Like so I said, it definitely I, broke broke up the movie. So it's like if things got like too real. It really snapped me out of it. Well, can I let me share? It's akin to this, and I don't know where else to share this story. And it's just funny to me. Yeah. Uh, years ago, uh, many many years ago, Keelan, uh, friend of the show, Keelan, uh, and a friend of us, um, we were watching. This is before we were at PBA. We were like maybe, or no, maybe it was. I think actually when we were living together. Anyway, it was late night. We were watching FX, the FX channel. Okay. And Boogie Nights was on, so we're watching Boogie Nights. And it's the scene in Boogie Nights where they're having the house party and um, William H. Macy's wife is in the driveway getting filmed yeah. doing pornography. I know what you're talking about, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's supposed to be kind of like this heartbreaking thing because he realizes his wife is just like cheating on him basically and, and all this. The dude just says – but the scene depicts a group of guys in a circle watching guys. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So – you know, and it's FX, right? So FX, 
they, 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 they push the line a little bit more than other TV channels. And this is like 11 p.m. FX, which is even a little bit less censorship than normal, right? So just trying to get the scene for you, right? It's, 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 it's an inappropriate scene that's happening on. Well, whatever reason, it cuts to commercial at that moment, and it cuts to commercial to celebrate Jesus, celebrate. Oh, and it's one of those like late night like worship album com- compilations, you yeah. know, that you can you remember those like you would order yeah. online. It's like you know, twenty four CDs of like worship music. I thought <laughs> you were gonna say it was the scene where William H Macy shoots himself in the head, and then it cuts no. to a commercial. And I was like, oh, that's pretty no, 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 no. <laughs> oh, it just goes straight from. It goes straight from a somewhat, you know, graphic for cable television sex scene yeah, to yeah. celebrate Jesus. <laughs> Gosh. <laughs> yeah. So, and you know, these ads are automated, so it's like there's not someone sitting like deciding, oh, here's a good break for a commercial. It's like no, like the most violent thing you can imagine happens, and all of a sudden, eh, Olive Garden. <laughs> it was jarring. Just nailing him into the tree, and yeah, that's exactly what was happening. Mary Magdalene and Mary and the Blessed Virgin Mary are like soaking up his blood with towels. Yep. Yep. And that was like, my experience watching like, this like movie. Shot of marinara sauce. <laughs> yeah. But you know, um my thoughts on this film, which it's fun because I actually have not seen this movie since I saw it in theaters all those years ago. Um, but yeah, I still feel like I have watched it because I know the story so well. Uh but one thing I noticed is uh, I now know where Zack Snyder went to film school, and it was watching Mel Gibson's movies. Um, I was about because that, like when Jesus is drawing in the sand, and you see like the sand, like you know, you were talking about does this movie fetishize violence? Well, yes, but every single image is fetishized in this movie. Every single moment is just hammering you over the head, like it is relentless. And it's like, I mean, it's just big and broad is what it is. It's not a subtle film at all, which is weird because in my memory, I remember the scene. I remember the scene where the Romans were basically going at it with Jesus with the cat of nine tails and stuff. I remember that scene being far more subtle, like more like fly on the wall rather than. The th- how theatrical it was. Now, taking out the subtitles was a good decision. That's probably why I remember it that way. Um, but yeah, th- I mean, this movie is big and broad, and just—I mean—he is soaking up uh, every every actor has a moment in this movie, and it's—I would say every scene is their moment. <laughs> I could see now why people were just like were, were just like it was an intense shoot because I mean the movie is intense. And I'm not mm-hmm. just talking about the violence. I'm talking about just every shot in the film. The part where, like, um, they give Judas the silver, you know? It's the, the, the way it's, like... Omo throw of the bag. And the only other movie that has ever done that is Dracula 2000. <laughs> <laughs> Which also features Judas. Yes. That's what I'm saying. Like, the whole <laughs> Judas, throwing Judas the, bat, the silver in a slow motion. They did the same thing in Dracula 2000. But they're trying to make a point. They're connecting it to the mythology of, of Dracula. And this is just like, you know this this moment in the Bible. Let's draw it out. And it's like, it's all, it's cinema, baby. I would say this is like an example of, like, I I, 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 I should look up what Martin Scorsese thinks about this movie. 
because uh, I, I am very curious now. Because if Martin Scorsese watches something like Marvel, he's like, no, that ain't cinema, baby. If he watches it, he's like, that's too much cinema. <laughs> we get it. You're making did a you movie. Read, uh, did you read Roger Ebert's review? Um, I read a part of it on on the Wikipedia page, I believe. I read the whole thing. Yeah. What, what did you, what did, I know? He, how many started? He gave it four, right? Four. Four out of yeah. four. Yeah. Four. He four. said it was an excellent, important movie, but he 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 made he he spent more time talking about the controversies around the film and said that, oh, yeah. you know, a lot of the people who are criticizing it and calling it anti-Semitic have not even seen it, and yeah, yeah. and um, um, though it is funny that he refers to um, Mel Gibson as a warrior for justice. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Uh-huh. Um, well, and, and to, to just kind of just put a put a put a I don't know, just to kind of take my point home. I remember watching the making of this uh, when you know he was going through, when Mel Gibson was going through like the press tour and stuff, and they had like you know the electronic press kit stuff, like behind the scenes footage. He's like he the way he's like filming people, like the I remember him shooting the last supper and he's like drawing on his monitor like where the bread should be and like drawing these like little arrows like on the monitor and like that is that's basically like how steven spielberg made raiders a lost ark <laughs> you know and that's the thing like every single moment of this is just like an explosion and i think i think that just comes from the fact that he wanted a he's an actor making a movie i think that's the, the the performances are what's really highlighted. This is a performance driven film, more than anything. And also, I think he just he really wanted to make something that wasn't baroque, like I said, like something Ben Hur or or Ten Commandments. And he didn't want to make something cheesy. So it's like he really wanted to just say like this is Jesus as a movie, and he made it big, and he made it emotional. And he made it brutal, and I'm sure it was just like a nightmare <laughs> to act in because that's what that is. I mean, that's 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 what you're seeing, um, and I think that's why this is my very expert opinion, Chuck. My very nuanced, researched, sensitive opinion. Um, I think that's why people think it's anti-Semitic because the Pharisees. <laughs> are like mustache twirly evil. You know yeah. what I mean? There is nothing subtle about those characters. Like that is I mean it's kind of funny how evil they are in my opinion. Like there's there's no uh mistaking or denial. It almost to a point where it's like I mean is he trying to say they're being performative and how like uh, offended they are by by Jesus, or is it supposed to be like this dramatic? But you've been so you've been to the Middle East, right? You know, oh, yeah. it's right. You know, and and the reality of it is, is right in 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 the Middle East, people are very oh, like yeah. expressive, right? Yes, and yes. So <laughs> the rending of the robes, like yeah, that's, that's... A, a longstanding Middle Eastern tradition of lament, and so I think that. I think that, yeah, like when the priest tears his robes and they're all like, you know, tearing their robes at what Jesus is, you know, at the blasphemy of it, right? It's, yeah. It definitely has that, oh, clutch my pearls kind of approach. But I think that's kind of the point, right? That I think that's actually kind of accurate to the culture and the time period. I could see that. I mean, I, yeah, I, I could see that. But I, I just think that 
that's like I said when I said like every moment of this movie could, feels like it, it could be classified as fetishized. That's what I mean. Every single moment with a Pharisee is just that overacting. That's not. It's not juxtaposed with anything else that they're doing. There is no moment of like a quiet moment or, or all of a sudden where we see them more contemplative or introspective. It's all just overbearing. Yeah. And that's like I said, when you make things that broadly, people will draw their own conclusions. <laughs> well, and I, I think the other piece, I think the fact that like the Anti-Defamation League and others came out against the movie before it ever, ever premiered in a theater. Yeah. I that I think comes more from like it, it's easy for someone to say like oh they're just being overly sensitive, but I think it actually comes more out of a concern of what happens particularly in places in parts of Europe whenever they do like big passion plays and how that has resulted in you know mass violence targeted toward Jews right, right. And so and that's a conversation a, worth having definitely because like, you could argue that like oh the I mean the, the the nature of the story itself could have its own you know well, anti-Semitic roots. And, well, and that's the thing. I sent you that article um, of, that from the Episcopal News Service about the Episcopal Church. Like, I, that's I, a, I, I'm sorry, I didn't get to read. I've been working all right. day. So. That's all right. No, but it, it raises. So the so I, the, the Episcopal Church has been having these conversations for a very long time about whether or not. So one of the customs that happens in the Episcopal Church every every you know on um, Palm Sunday and on Good Friday is what's called the reading of the Passion Narrative. Um, usually Palm Sunday, so every, every our reading cycle in the Episcopal Church is broken up in a three-year cycle, and we share it with the Roman Catholic Church and Methodists and Lutherans and others, where, um, um, so it's every three years and it's different Gospels. So it's either a Matthew year, a Mark year, or a Luke year. Right now we're in a Mark year. So um, we read on Passion Sunday, we read from the Gospel of Mark, the, the story of Jesus' crucifixion is found in Mark's gospel, which everybody is happy when we do that because it's the shortest of all of them. Um, but the tradition is Good Friday to read from John's gospel. And that's probably the most well-known passion narrative story. And it's a very long reading. And it's usually done dramatically and all these kinds of things. Um, but there's this real big question that's been levied at the church over the years as to whether or not this is a practice that fosters anti-Semitic thinking, particularly because John's gospel has a habit of referring to the Jews. Right. Um, it uses that term, the uh -oh. Jews. Um, and, and so it becomes this real big conversation about what we do with this, because serious biblical scholars understand John, if John wrote the gospel, right? Tradition is that it's the fourth gospel. And it's probably the product of his community or whatever. But um, either way, without a doubt, right? Because every book of the Bible, aside from Luke, except for Luke and Acts, which are written by St. Luke, um, is written by a Jew, right? So John, or whoever is affiliated with John who put together the Gospel of John, was likely a Jewish person drawing out of a Jewish tradition. And so when that author is talking about the Jews, he is not referring to a racial or ethnic identity because those concepts weren't really around back then, right? Race theory is something that shows up like in the 18, 1700s, right? So John could not have been talking about an entire race of people when he's talking about that. What he's actually talking about is a religious identity. He is referring to people of the Jewish religious persuasion, right? He himself is a Jew of which of, of what is now being called the Christian sect by the by, by the time he's writing this. Um, and there's Gentiles in the church, so it's becoming a very interesting. And they're 
God, John's gospel is coming out after the temple is destroyed um, and the relationship between the Jewish community and the Christian movement are very severed. Um, but when you read John's gospel, it's pretty clear that who he's targeting are the religious leaders, people like the, 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 the Sanhedrin, the religious you know, court, uh, the high priest and his people, maybe the Pharisees who had gained a, some degree of political power uh, in the ancient world at this time. So John, you know, we, we have this tendency through passion plays and even the guy, even like the passion does this, it shows like these, like that the mobs who crucify Jesus are this like big group of people, right? Like, you know, passion does a really good job of showing, you know, Pilate looking and he sees, you know, what the, what, where like in one of the gospels it says, you know, a riot is getting ready to break out. And that's why Pilate washes his hands of Jesus because he's afraid of the riot, which I can talk about that in a minute because it's an important historical piece. Um, um, but um, the reality of it is, is that when you read the, uh, when you read the gospels, for the most part, it's actually probably a very small group of people. This is probably happening behind closed doors. You know, it's like a, you know, you know, dozen or so people of the of the Jewish religious leader, religious leadership meeting with Pilate's people and they're having a meeting in a courtyard. There might have been a few witnesses to it. But the idea that like, the entire city of Jerusalem spilled out of their homes to watch this trial happening, you know, before dawn is pretty unlikely. Hmm. Um, and so it's you know, it's it's and the whole thing is that it's being done in such a way so that there's that it's being done quickly because of various historical factors that are going on. And if you want me to, I, 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 I want to share more about that because I think it's okay. important as we talk about Jesus movies to, to, to talk about that. But, um, but anyway, the point being is that this question that exists of whether or not our tradition in the church and even with this film of depicting, you know, and, and, and remembering and capturing and putting forward um, Jesus's, crucifixion if that is an anti-semitic thing um you know not inherently um and but it's what we do with it that and how we and how we interpret it how we present it right if we do a passion play and then we use that to be like so you should go now and mob the jewish neighborhood because those guys killed jesus well that's a problem yeah but that's not something that that's not something that john or any of the first generation of christians would have ever supported because they were jews too and there seems to be this sense of that that popular discussion of the religious world forgets this that at the heart christianity is a jewish movement it's a thing happening within a jewish cultural and religious framework first and foremost jesus is a reformer of the jewish religion um you know the gentile aspect of it comes way later um and so um I think I think the church would be helpful to re remember that. And so in regards to like how we handle it, I think some de some degree of disclaimer or or whatever probably needs to be a part of the tradition. Hmm. Um, I don't think we need to like stop reading John's gospel because of it. But I do think we might need to, you know, put an asterisk next to the word, the phrase the Jews and kind of explain <laughs> yeah. like what's being, you know, what's being meant by that term. Right. Right. And, you know, what's interesting, Chuck, is like I'd never thought that the story of, of, of Jesus and his crucifixion is anti-Semitic until this movie came out. Yeah. When the conversation, when I, you know, made, was made privy of the conversation because it was always, I never thought of it as like, oh, the Jews killed Jesus. That never even crossed my mind my entire yeah. life. It was always the Romans killed Jesus. 
And then when I saw the movie, I was like, I guess I could kind of see it because he's, they, they, they really made these guys out to be super evil. And Pilot seems more conflicted than anything. Not right. not so much, you know, like, yeah, let's kill this fool. It'll be awesome. Um, Let me, can, I, can I talk real quick for about, about Okay, sure, so. Because I do uh, like how Pilot is portrayed. I think it's actually really interesting. Yeah, so John's Gospel is the one that depicts, that depicts Pilot as, as, as very conflicted. And it, it mentions that he's... Um, that at one point he tries to get he tries to free Jesus, mm-hmm. um, and and John, depending on how you read John's gospel, it can always it can look like he winds up kowtowing to this mob of this you know this evil Jewish mob that's so hell bent on killing you know the Son of God that he'll give in to them. But here's what we know about Pilate from history: he was an extremely cruel man. Um, he, if if I remember if I remember all my history correctly, he 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 pissed off Caesar, and and so I can't remember who the emperor was at the time. But anyway, he he winds up uh, the Judean province is sort of like I used to work in American Eagle, and one time we got a manager at the uh, at the uh, Palm Beach Lakes Mall location, American Eagle. You okay. remember when I yeah and, I used to work there too yeah. Fucking minute, and uh, <laughs> and we got uh, but we got they got this new manager, and she was awful. And we found out that this was the corporate way of sort of promoting her out, right? Like they had to get her out of the store because nobody worked like her as an assistant manager or whatever. So they promoted her as manager, but they promoted her as a manager to a store that was failing, right? Yeah. So they kind of touch on this in the movie a little bit. Yeah, they didn't make that aware. Yeah, yeah. So that's kind of what happens with pilot pilot. Pilate's in the Judean province because he had pissed off Caesar. And so they stuck him out there in the middle of nowhere as, you know, sort of sort of almost quasi exile. Um, because I think he had in some military campaign somewhere else. He had been he had been a little excessive in his violence. And that's what really upset Caesar. So he sticks Pilate out in the middle of nowhere. So Pilate's stuck with this province. And the thing is, is that every year around Passover, some type of uprising would happen. Jews from all over the Jewish world would come to Jerusalem at Passover and they would hear the story about how God intervened in Egypt and, you know, raised up Moses, who then sent plagues and liberated them. So and they would and they would start thinking about how they were liberated from the Babylonian captivity and all this. And so now it's suddenly and now it's like, all right, we're waiting for somebody to come. And, you know, what's funny is they they I mean, they they talk about that movie where he is like, no matter what I do, there's going to be some kind of uprising and a movie that's sort of like adds context to that that I think really captures the socio-political uh, 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 climate of uh, Jerusalem during that time uh, Life of Brian right which is all about because the whole movie makes a joke about like there's like a million different like groups rebelling against yes Rome and Jerusalem yes I mean you've got the Zealots yeah. you've got the Sadducees you've got the Pharisees you've got the Essenes you've got I mean you've got all these different groups of people in this powder keg of a region um, the Galilean faction as well as the Judean faction because Galilee was a separate area from Judea and it wasn't actually annexed into the empire until Jesus was like a kid and they and that was only after Rome attempted a census and people rebelled against the census and like 25,000 was it like 25,000 men were crucified? Like it was, you know, so Jesus, like his little kid watched, you know, most adult males of his time crucified because of a rebellion against Rome. Right. So, so Pilate, so Pilate has to deal with this all the time. Right. Any riot in the area looks bad. 
any any uprising looks bad for him, right? On top of that, the Jews are terrified of it. The Jews are terrified, particularly religious leadership, I should say. You know, they're they're because every time there's an uprising, Rome cracks down and then they lose more freedoms. So there'd been an uprising, so they build the Antonia Fortress right next to the temple. It's gotten so bad by this time that actually the high priest's vestments that he wore to conduct all the sacred liturgies are kept inside the Antonia Fortress. So the high priest actually has to ask Pilate for permission to do his job. Like uh, We know this from history now. So you can imagine the situation here, right? You're, you know, like... I actually, in recent years, have become quite sympathetic to the Jew, to the to the priests in the story of Jesus because, you know, they're in a, they're in a they're in a they're in a tough place because their whole thing is is to try to maintain some modicum of Jewish independence, and they know that any uprising, any would-be Messiah who who rabbles, who you know who rallies a crowd is going to result in military violence. Hundreds of people are going to die, and the Jews are going to lose more autonomy in the region. And so they're trying to hang on to whatever they can. And so to them, Jesus is just another guy who's trying to do this because there had been several of them throughout history. In fact, um, there's one of the Gospels goes to the trouble of pointing out that Barabbas was was one of these people. So Barabbas could have very well been a guy who tried to lead an insurrection and rebellion against the Romans. Um, so, um, so you can actually see a sort of sympathetic thing here, right? Um, they're the, the less than them trying to like, Oh, we got to kill Jesus because he makes us look bad. Right. I mean, sure. There's an element of that, right? He's embarrassed them by, by, you know, creating, by turning over things in the temple and calling them out for their money-making schemes in the temple. Yeah. But I think, I think overall, overall, they're like, okay, we don't like him, but he also runs the risk of bringing Roman violence down on our heads. And so maybe we should like, you actually see this where Gamaliel is one, I think it says it's better for the, it's better for one to die for the sake of the people rather than a lot of people to die for the sake of the one or whatever. So there's this whole thing where it's like, let's just, let's get him arrested. We, we've got a sympathetic ear with his, with Judas He'll sell them out. We can get them arrested. We can probably get them crucified. Do it before, you know, do it before the day really gets going and before the Passover celebrations, and hopefully it'll shut people up. Um, Pilate sees as an opportunity to just, like, really be mean and to, like, be cruel. I mean, the fact that he puts a sign over Jesus' head that says, Jesus, King of the Jews, there's a tradition that wants to try to act like this is Pilate's passive-aggressive way of being like, Oh, you should listen to him. Yeah. You know, you're doing this to yourselves. But actually, Pilate's mocking them because he's saying, "Oh, look, here's your would-be king of the Jews, your would-be liberator. Here's what we're going to do to anyone who uses this title, yeah. right?" So it's actually it's actually meant to be a mockery, not just of Jesus, but of the Jewish people. And so Pilate, if you read the Gospels tradition and you read it with this kind of in your mind, you can see how he's he's being theatrical himself and he's whipping up the crowd and playing the crowd. And yeah, when he when he confronts Jesus and you know, he finds out that, you know, that people said that he claimed to be the son of God or whatever. Pilate gets a little freaked out. Well, Pilate's a pagan, right? So the idea that like a divine person walking among people, like that's part of his religion too. Hmm. So it totally makes sense that he'd be a little bit afraid of like, oh, maybe this is a, maybe this is a living deity walking around on earth, yeah. you know? So maybe, maybe we shouldn't kill this guy. I don't know. And then him washing his hands is sort of like, all right, it's on you, right? And it's all, you know, and Pilate ultimately becomes, becomes a coward, right? Because, yeah, he's playing with the Jews and he's being cruel, and he's, but he also knows that he's 
under a microscope with with Caesar. He, you know, and and so I think it becomes this really ugly situation where the real enemy in this whole story is the oppressive machine of Rome. Rome has twisted the Jewish religion into this thing that makes itself into like into this radical survival mode where it's willing to throw someone under the bus. It's twisted, you know, this cruel man into a coward. It's, you know, I think that I think there's just bigger things at play in the story that we sometimes miss out on because we don't know the history all that well. And that but ultimately, I think the Gospels present when we know the history, the Gospels present that the real enemy in all of this is Rome. Yeah. Um, you know, and that, you know, that the Jewish people are victims themselves in this whole story. Um, and that I don't think they're culpable in the sense of like they killed Jesus because they were mean yeah, and greedy yeah. or whatever. Anyway, that was sort of my long thing, but no, I think that's um, really interesting. I mean, I, I, I feel like it, it, that, I mean, that how it was always taught to me growing up and that, um, I mean, surprise, surprise, like, like the book of revelation, you, you read into it between the lines. It is still very much like an anti authoritarian, you know, worldview. Right. It's being expressed in both in the gospels and in revelation and, and, and probably in most of the Bible. Um, so it's um, it's interesting, and and you know I like I think it's just kind of funny like that never that conversation never occurred to me until the movie came out. <laughs> um, but uh, let's talk a little bit about the the movie itself. I want to know uh, since this is probably something we should probably do for each of these episodes. I want to know about your take on Jim Caviezel as Jesus. <laughs> um, I think of I always think of he was on I want to say it was a Daily Show with John Stewart. Okay. Or Conan O'Brien, one of those shows, and I remember him talking about when Mel Gibson called him, and his depiction of Mel Gibson is Mel Gibson smoking a cigar, um, and on the phone with him, and he said, um, he said, I want you to play Jesus. He's like, okay, I can do that. And then he says, then I called Mel Gibson back after a couple minutes, and I was like, oh, by the way, I just realized um, I'm 33 years old, and my name is, and my initials are JC. <laughs> and Mel Gibson was like, oh, you're freaking me out, and hung up on him. <laughs> um, I think. I think I think he's a good Jesus. I, I I I just in general have, I'm so over. I mean the entire cast, other than other than the woman who plays Mary Magdalene, and the person who plays she's Satan, really good. She's really good. I didn't. Yeah, I, I don't only, know who it is. She's the only Jewish cast member in the movie. Uh, let me look her up real quick. Maya Maya. I can't remember. Moldenstern or something like that. Maya Morgenstern. Like, yeah. Um, she's incredible. Yeah. Uh, I actually thought she her performance was the best in the movie. Apparently, from what I read, was that um, she insisted on including elements from the Passover Seder in, during the Last Supper, which yeah. I thought was pretty cool. Um, and, um, yeah, so from what I can get, just from looking at names, she's the only Jewish name in the whole cast. Everybody else is Italians. Um, yeah. And then Satan is an albino. Um, I guess could be an Italian albino, but, um, um, but yeah, I just, I'm kind of recently learned something, JP, it kind of blew my mind and I don't know if you know this or not, but you know about King David's infamous wife, right? Yes. Saw her bathing on the roof, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. What's her name? I forgot. <laughs> okay. I was just going <laughs> to, it's Bathsheba. Okay. Bathsheba. That's right. Yeah. 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 One of those things, I, I know when I write, when I hear it. Yeah. I can't believe that I did not know this, but 
in painting, but in Hebrew, that is Bat, Bat Sheba, which means daughter of Sheba, which means daughter of Ethiopia, which means she's a black woman. Right. Um, so Solomon is her son. At best, he's a he is also a black man or half black, right? It basically, if we, if, we, if we assume that David was not a black man himself or a dark skinned man, right? Um, he is of mixed race heritage. It explains why the queen of Ethiopia comes to visit Solomon. Oh, a child of Sheba is on the throne. I got to come see this, right? And see what connections we have. According to tradition, they also had a relationship. Um, but anyway, that is the lineage that eventually leads to Jesus. So I know that, you know, depending on how intermarriage and genetics and all that works, things could change. But that being said, there is a chance that Jesus could be a very dark skinned man, possibly even a black man. Oh yeah. I've seen plenty of those, uh, you know, those discovery channel documentaries where they like try to like recreate how, how historical figures might've looked, Yeah, you know, using like 3d technology and stuff. And he always ends up looking like Paul Giamatti, like a dark-skinned Paul Giamatti. <laughs> and I'm like, that's the movie I want to see. I want to see a Paul Giamatti Jesus. Yeah. I want to see a schlubby, out of shape. Uh, I mean, not out of shape, but like you know, like a carpenter's uh, the way a carpenter, uh, the way a baseball player is out of shape. <laughs> you know, like yeah, 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 yeah. Give me, yeah, like, give me a Babe Ruth Jesus. Yeah, he's not like cut, right? He's yeah. not cut, but he's you know, he's a physically fit, like old Superman, right? Old yeah. Superman was not like. Like a Cary Grant barrel-chested type, you know, him and yeah. eggs-eating guy. <laughs> yeah, like, well, but, you know, on top of that, Jesus was probably, like, four foot nine to five foot tall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, you know, because that's what we found from the corpses that they've uncovered from the first century. That's the average height of a Jewish male in the region is four foot nine. Interesting. So, um, and I think you know, they, so... they've even found, like, drawings of, like, what men looked like back then, like portraits on walls and stuff, and they were dark skin and had curly hair. None of this yeah, Jesus... shoulder-length hair yeah well that's the thing is the tradition of jesus looking the way he looks actually comes out of um when they developed the tradition of christian iconography they wanted they made him look like zeus hmm. because for the greek mind that's what a god looks like a god looks like zeus and so they drew the zeus tradition jesus would have had hair probably about as long as mine yeah except his sideburns would have been really long and probably curled yeah. and he would have had a really long beard because that was the tradition um he would have worn some kind of a head covering you know like a i don't know about full-on keep a yarmulke type thing but some kind of a head covering um, because that's that's what that's how Jews cut their hair from. We understand in the time period. Right. Um, the Bible, uh, the Book of Revelation describes him as having, you know, the the sort of divine version of him, um, having skin like you know burnished bronze, dark brass, and hair that's like a la like lamb's wool. So you know he, hmm. you know, curly yeah. hair, possibly possibly rocking that fro. You know what I mean? Right. Um, definitely not Jim Caviezel. Definitely, definitely not Jim Caviezel. <laughs> super white. <laughs> Yeah. Um, so that, that was, that's always kind of a bit of a disappointment for me that, that we continue to do this. Yeah. Um, I mean, the tradition of doing this, of course, is goes way back to churches when they started doing art. They wanted, they, they made Jesus and all of the stories of the Bible look like the people in the pews, as it were. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, when they got to Northern Europe, the Jesus was light skinned dude, you know, but you go to, you go to like, you know, you go into Greek Orthodox churches and Jesus is a very Mediterranean, dark skin kind of guy. You get into sure. Russian churches, dark, dark hair, fair skin. You know, you get all of that. Yeah. When I was when I visited London, we went to the National Gallery and they have like, you know, stories of the Bible depicted in all these like ancient, these like old you know Renaissance paintings. And it looks like 
the Bible, but like in a Renaissance era. It's very strange. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like that's just a, David wearing tights. That's, <laughs> like, a, that's a very rich tradition. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, and so you know, then but it just so happened that Western Europe, you know, Northwestern Europeans were the ones who actually did a lot of international mission work, mm-hmm. and so they just carried their art tradition with them, and that's how we get white Jesus. Right. Um, it wasn't really all that insidious; it's just how it worked. Yeah. Um, but um, but that being said, you know, we're still doing it. Um, and, and just in terms of the performance itself, I mean, I think Kavizel does a really good job. Um, he, um, I mean, I think he does a stellar job. Like the the progression of his performance, like yeah. I mean, it, it's most. Know, so the movie, he's got a black eye. Yeah, I mean, the progression of like of like just. I mean, it's one thing when he's like getting tortured and stuff, and it's it's brutal to watch. It's really hard. Um, but when he's finally like nailed to the cross, he knows to like really switch it up. Like, this is no longer, like, I'm just being tortured. This is, like, I'm begging for death. You know? Mm-hmm. And it's, that's when it became, that, that part came, was was hard for me to watch, I have to say. Um, yeah. Because he, I, I mean, I think he really kind of sold, like, uh, I'm just, like, a, I'm a dying person right now. And it's, it's, yeah, it's brutal. He did. Yeah. I also, I, I think he's really good in, you know, you talked about how, like, the Pharisees and others don't get quiet moments. But Jesus gets a couple of quiet moments. Oh yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're actually my favorite things in the movie. Um, I I I love I love the scene in the flashback where Jesus is building the table. Oh yeah, that was interesting. Yeah, that's, and Mary that's comes over and he's like washing his hands and he's like being playful with her. Like I love seeing that relationship between mother and son. Um, you know, because Mary is always so depicted as this otherworldly being, right? Um, and the idea that you would just show her as goofing off with her son yeah and silly about like the table like yeah this is too tall and him being like <laughs> oh he uses chairs and you know i have to say i mean it's i think some of the best filmmaking is you know when she's watching him carry the cross and she's reminiscing of like watching yeah. him as a little boy trip and fall and she goes to help him up and like now she I can't cry every time yeah, that's. I mean, that's that's really. I mean, that's that's good filmmaking, man. That's that's good. And it's and it's my and that's my favorite part in the movie, actually, because um, you know, my favorite book of the Bible is the Book of Revelation, and so to have Mel Gibson have Jesus say a word that he uses that Jesus says in the Book of Revelation, I'm making all things new. Yeah. Uh, I think it's such a great touch, and that's the stuff I think works really well in the movie. By the way, is when they draw from the wider tradition of the scriptures, like the opening scene where Jesus stomps on the snake's head. Right. Yeah. Going to Genesis three. Um, you know, that, that stuff is really cool to me. Um, and he's able I, to nail those moments. Like, that's what I say. He takes it like that moment where he tells Mary, I think I, I make everything new that like the music swells and yeah. it's like, because I mean, they definitely make it as like a moment of despair. Like, that's the thing. That's another thing that I, that I, I appreciate about, like, I appreciate about Mel Gibson's filmmaking is that he does like all great movies that are based on true stories. There are moments where you're like, Oh, this could end right here, mm-hmm. and like you're invested enough for it to be like I wouldn't be like shocked if it just ended at this moment, or if like oh no they're they they're like no you can you can keep uh, Barabbas and let him go like uh, that's 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 a tricky thing to do. I think he I think he's able to do that pretty well, and um, you know it's interesting. I and I, I want to say this because I I 
I don't want to run out of time and not mention it uh, because nobody brings this up about this movie. There's another movie about the, the final hours of a historical figure's life. And it's told, you know, accurately, more grounded in reality, more cinematic, if you will. And it actually shares, kind of shares a title with The Passion of the Christ. And it's The Passion of Joan of Arc. Mm-hmm. And that is a silent film directed by Carl Dreher um, about the final moments of Joan of Arc's life. It's her trial and her uh, execution. And it's, and it's told word for word from like the actual transcripts of the, her trial. And the actors like aren't wearing any like makeup. You know, it's very historically accurate. It's also very brutal in its depiction. Um, and that's another movie where you're like, I mean, she could get out of this, <laughs> you know, where you get that invested. And I always thought that was interesting that there's, that I, I mean, I've never heard him mention it, and I never heard any other person mention it. But like the Passion of Joan of Arc and the Passion of the Christ, both about the the final moments of their of their lives. I mean, I think there's there has to be some comparison here. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. That was interesting. Yeah. Um, no, but, but I, I I think you know just in terms of this cinematic you know take on the life of jesus i mean it's it really it really feels like it, it, it the, just to kind of try to coin a term i don't know but it feels like devotional cinema hmm. you know what i mean like you know there's devotional literature right this feels like devotional cinema right you're 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 watching the movie like this for different reasons than you do like avengers endgame or eternal sunshine spotless mind or whatever right you're you know you're you're not necessarily watching the passion of the Christ so that you can have a good time at the movies. Yeah. It's not cathartic. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there are cathartic moments. Like I, you were talking about quiet moments. There are moments where he like Jim Caviezel will just like look at somebody and you know, it's just like Jesus sort of recognizing someone doing something good or someone like not going unnoticed. And, like, they can kind of catch him looking at them. There's just, like, a small, quiet exchange. And it's, like, he recognizes you, you know, if that makes any sense. Right. Which, uh, it has its has its uh, a precedent of sorts in the scriptures, right? Jesus, Mary Magdalene comes to the tomb in John's gospel, and she assumes that Jesus is the gardener. She doesn't recognize him. And it's not until he says, Mary, that she recognizes is him it's something in the way he says her name right the idea that you know in a cinematic version of that right you would communicate that through look rather than through voice yeah uh-huh. um yeah and i think that's the other cool thing about this movie is the way that it really seems to work with its medium right um you know i, I it's probably a weird thing to compare it to but i sort of think of what alan moore said about watchmen and why he felt that watchmen was never really meant to be a movie because it was so tied to its medium, yeah. Um, you know, the 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 obviously the gospels are the gospels are the gospels, but the story is not meant to be tied to any one particular medium. And so the idea that you would adapt it, adapt the story for a different medium, I think is pretty is is a is a is a, is a appropriate and right thing to do. Mm-hmm. 
I do want to talk a little bit. I mean, I know we're running out of time, and this could get a, a big topic, but I do want to talk a little bit because I think it'll come up in all these other movies to some degree or another. And that is, is a movie about the crucifixion of Jesus or any movie that, that talks about the life of Jesus is always going to deal with the crucifixion. Is it a fetish? Is it a fetishizing of violence? And I say this because when you, I, one of the things I'm always struck by is we we the crucifixion obviously takes up this huge narrative arc and cinematic art, you know, cinematic moment in any movie about the life of Jesus. Like the crucifixion becomes like this main event. Mm -hmm. But when you read the gospels, it's a sentence. Hmm. It's just, and they crucified him. Really? I didn't like, actually those little details, right. You know, John's gospel, he was taken and he was scourged and then he was crucified. Like they're just sentences. There's no, there's no dwelling on what that is, right? Of course, that's the that's the artist's job, right? Is to bring out stuff in that. Um, but do you do you think that this is a fetishizing of violence, or particularly maybe just this film? I, don't... I think so. I mean, I, I I think he really did want. I mean, I think it goes to that question. Like there is some lingering on the violence. You know, I, I watched, like I said, I watched it last night. I don't know how long it's been since you've seen it, but it's like just the the scourging. Yeah, that's it's a brutal scene. Yeah, and it's and um, I mean, watching his hands shake from the pain. I mean, that's yeah, and like he, one eye goes out, like and he, you know you can tell you that he's, he goes blind in one eye. Um, so definitely is, and you know he. I remember in, in, in interviews they were asking him like, "Why be so brutal? <laughs> Why?" And his answer was always the tune of something like, oh, well, like, isn't it incredible that someone could go through this, like, unimaginable violence and at the end of the day be like, I forgive you. So it's like, how do you how do you put power behind the forgiveness without making it like as brutal as possible? Mm -hmm. And that that was his reasoning, you know, in, in, in the in the press tour. <laughs> but I don't know, like when I think you'd also have to look at Mel Gibson's other films you know like something like braveheart which is also extremely brutal in this violence uh apocalypto which i mean people are like tearing each other's hearts out of that movie the, the patriot even though he didn't direct it yeah so. <laughs> um so i don't know i think may mel gibson i think maybe he just finds some kind of cinematic truth in portraying violence like there's some kind of like as some kind of crucible that that reveals something about us when we're put when we suffer, you know. Yeah. But it also could just be good old fashioned American fetishization of violence. Yeah, you know, that's the only way we can derive meaning from anything is if we hurt somebody. Yeah, because yeah, I, I I ask this partly because I, I think of, you know, I my friend you know a friend from seminary um, is also a priest. You know, we would we you know we went into a few like Roman Catholic churches when we were in Jerusalem, um, and you know we both got around to churches and and he worked with Roman Catholics in college and things like that. Um, and we would always talk about how you go into a Catholic church, especially Catholic churches outside of America. You know, like particularly like Latin American style style Roman Catholic churches. You know, the Jesuses that are on the cross in these churches are just like horrifically bloody. I mean, it's just 
you know, kind of, you know, nightmare inducing <laughs> uh, images of bloody Jesus. And we talk about like how the Catholic church really emphasizes the good Friday thing and how the crucifixion is such a big deal. And, you know, they really, really want to drive home bloody Jesus. Yeah. I mentioned that because obviously Mel Gibson is a very, is a, is a very, very conservative from yeah, I said, but I guess arguably he's not even Roman Catholic anymore, right? Because he's part of some kind of breakaway group, right? Like, I actually don't almost know. like Opus Dei. Yeah. Really? But um, That's weird. Um, maybe I'm wrong about that. But anyway, he. Um, I mean, I think he's part of a breakaway. I don't know if it's Opus Dei, but um, but as I was as I was reading through, you know, we can. I think there's a degree of debate around the anti-Semitism of the movie. Yeah. Um, the violence question is the one that always sticks with me because, you know, I'm being as an Episcopalian, there is definitely this tendency in the Episcopal church being a more liberal esque church to downplay the violence of the cross mm-hmm. and to say that, you know, say things like, you know, this wasn't God's plan. You know, this just was an unfortunate thing that happened to Jesus, um, which I don't agree with. Um, so as I was reading all of this and thinking about it for our episode, I was I, I kept thinking about the passage, First uh, Corinthians one twenty two to twenty four, where Paul talks about you know Jews look for signs and Greeks look for uh, something. He says, but you know, um, but we preach Christ crucified, which is a scandal to Greeks and a, a stumbling block to Jews. Um, you know, and Paul's writing to a mixed you know G- you know Gentile and Jewish church in Rome when he or, or in Corinth when he's writing this, and. He's, you know, he's basically saying that, you know, Paul's trying to make this point that the cross is always going to be a problem, right? It's considered foolishness. Um, it's considered foolishness to the Greek mind, right? They're like, they value the person who can give new wisdom and knowledge. And the idea that this person would be killed for their wisdom and knowledge sort of shows that it wasn't good yeah. or whatever. Um, for Jews, right, it's a stumbling block, a thing to have to work itself around, right? Because you know, Paul's driving home the point, like he himself as a Jewish man is saying, like, it's something I have to deal with. It's the fact that the God I worship was embodied and here on earth and like the people who should have known better, you know, were the ones, you know, the, the people like him as a Pharisee, right? Yeah. Speaking as a Pharisee, um, you know, turned him over. So, so Paul's dealing, you know, Paul's writing about this stuff. And I, and I just can't keep thinking about that idea that, you know, he says, you know, for those people, that's what it is. But for those of us who are being, who are being redeemed, it is, you know, it is the triumph of God. It is new life. It is all these good things. Um, and I, so what I come to with this is that I do think, obviously, I think the violence of the cross is necessary. I think maybe the film may have gone a little, dwelt a little too much on the violence. You know, when, when you... Yeah, there, there is there is a there is a almost kind of a voyeuristic element I think at times where we're sort of like again Jesus's hand shaking from the pain I don't think is a necessary shot. Yeah. But I also think though I'm I'm of the belief that the cross is ultimately expository, and what I mean by that is that the violence of the cross. Did you freeze? No, okay. No, I'm um, sorry. I'm just the, trying to look for something, but I, I'm listening. Um, but that the violence of the cross, it exposes the violent tendencies of the human race. And that it's meant to put on display the realities of things that are within all of us. Um, and I'm, I was sort of struck by reading a couple of comments from people in, in my research that said stuff like, 
you know, it's only focusing on Jesus's death without the expense of his teachings, you know, and that's a very common liberal line to be like, well, we got to talk about his teachings. Well, yeah, but you can't talk about his teachings without this piece too. Like this is all part of it. And and I think that it, it, it further shows the reality that we're uncomfortable. We're uncomfortable with what this violence exposes. And I, and I feel like that the people who say that, oh, it should focus on his teachings, not on the violence is inflicted on him. But these are the same people that would, that would be like, you know, they think it's necessary for us to see the violence and things like say, like the handmaid's tale or, um, or like, um, Django Unchained, right? Like it's a type of violence that we need to confront, right? We need to confront it, that it's happened. But I feel like, yes, but I feel like the cross subsumes that violence yeah. And so, you know, and, and I'm, and I'm, I was writing notes. So I'm kind of going off my notes here. So I'm getting a little bit sermon-esque here. I apologize. But I was, right. as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about the fact that the Derek Chauvin trial is taking place. The man who was responsible for killing George Floyd, right? Mm-hmm. The mechanism of death of the cross is asphyxiation, suffocation. Your lungs fill with fluid and you're no longer weak. You're no longer strong enough to support your body and you, your lungs collapse in on themselves and you, you suffocate and die. Right. You know, Jesus pretty much died of suffocation, right? He gave up his breath. That's the last, you know, that's what he does. Um, He breathed his last. So Jesus dies of suffocation. You know, George Floyd died of suffocation, right? Mm -hmm. So there's a straight line between the crucifixion of Jesus and the violence that happens on the cross and the violence that happened to George Floyd. Both sponsored by the state. Yeah. (laughs) But you know what I'm saying? Like, so I think that the violence, like seeing a movie like this and having the example of such explicit violence of the cross, I think is important, but not because like, if there's a problem with it in the movie, I think, I think that Mel Gibson over assumed the apparentness of this violence that somehow someone's going to watch this movie, see the violence and be like, I can't believe Jesus did that for me. Um, I think it's more that that violence is put on display for us to say like, wow, humans are capable of horrible things. Mm -hmm. And that what I see happening to Jesus in this movie, it reflects what happened with the Khmer Rouge. It, it's, it's reflected in what happened to that Asian grandmother that was beaten a few weeks ago. It, oh, yeah. It's reflected in the death of George Floyd. It's reflected in, like, rapes. It's reflected in, like, all of these things. I mean, there's a reason why he showed the part that one of the flashbacks was, um, you know, if they do this to me, they'll do it to you. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, I, that's definitely part of it. And I and so I think and I think this is something that like evangelicals and some Catholics miss in the story. And I think you know more liberal leaning churches like mine are quick to you know we're quick to jump on the bandwagon to be like oh it was bad we want to show that we're you know we're on we're on the side of the of the right the good crowd the cool yeah, crowd right? right. But as Christians ourselves, we have to account for the fact that this violence happened and that the scriptures tell us that it was God's will that it happened, um, and that. You know, and the challenge for us is how do we deal with it being redemptive? And this is going to be a conversation we're going to have with all these movies because, you know, there's always that question of, you know, does this does this support, you know, child abuse and things like that? Um, Whereas I think ultimately what God was trying to do with this is to is to reveal how all of our acts of violence as people are actually theological in nature. Right. And that when we when we put our knee on the neck of a man struggling, you know, who just, well, he passed off counterfeit bills. He didn't deserve to be, he didn't be suffocated for 15 minutes on the side of the road. Yeah. You know, so when we do that, 
that is actually an act being done to Jesus, right? What Jesus himself says in the gospels and what, you know, what they do, what you, you know, what you do to each other, you do to me. Yeah. Um, and so, and so that's why I think the violence in the movie is probably important for people to see, but it, it is, I, it, yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to draw a hard line, Chuck, if you're done. I'm done. Okay. I'm going to draw a hard line because this is tied into something that I've been, that's been on my mind for like about a year now. Um, and has actually kind of helped me come around on some of Zack Snyder's movies. <laughs> um, I feel like we are, you know, I, I, I definitely think that American culture does have a problem with fetishizing violence. We definitely, I mean, it <laughs> kind of goes out say that's such an understatement. Um, John Wick. It, we, yeah, we, I mean, I think we have just like an undercurrent of culture that is just so devoid of compassion. Um, you know, it could be the military industrial complex. It could be, uh, uh, white supremacy. It could be all of that thing. All, all, it could be all of that. But at the same time, I do feel like when an artist knows what they're doing and they're trying to say something using violence, you can't take the teeth out of it because it loses all meaning. Yeah. And I feel like that is because that, that can have its own, um, uh, negative reaction and influence in the culture it, to 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 desensitize violence for people like it, especially in a, a, a culture that already loves violence you're like t- saying like there's there's no there's no consequence to your violence you know i watched one of my all-time favorite movies is total recall and when someone gets shot in that movie it's like it's hard to watch like it's just blood bags just exploding out of like their wardrobe Getting I, like it, it feels like you get it on you sometimes when you watch it, right? Yeah. But then you watch like here's a movie you watched recently, Deadpool, mm-hmm. and he's shooting everybody, and there's like CGI blood kind of every now and then, maybe. Especially in Deadpool two, I remember Deadpool two being like there was like a lot of violence, but like very little blood, which is kind of strange. Which because like everyone has like a uh, everyone's armed to the teeth in that movie. So except the guy who falls into the wood chipper. Uh, there's that, yeah. So, but but even even that violence, since we use CGI now, like it's just not visceral anymore, right? And so when you take the visceralness out of violence, like an art, I mean, what are you, what are you saying? Like, what do you expect to feel? Like, I mean, there's there's a reason why Paul Verhoeven showed that violence because he wants you to feel it he wants you to you're supposed to be like no i mean sure there's weirdos like me who are like yeah that's awesome more but at the same that doesn't mean i'm not devoid of that feeling of like it's on me you know and that's i mean that's how i feel watching passion of the christ as well like i I, there is that sort of like you know this has real consequences and it's really affecting me but you 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 should be feeling that way and it's not wrong for art to feel that way i mean schindler's list does the same thing Mm mm-hmm I mean, I don't know why you could say this fetishizes violence and like a movie like Schindler's List doesn't because holy crap, that movie is whew, that's a rough that's another one where you're just like, I'll just I feel like watching Schindler's List today. Yeah. <laughs> there's well, there's and, nothing good about that movie. Right, and, and you can almost argue. <laughs> yeah. I'm I'm gonna be on very thin ice with what I'm about to say. Okay. But you could almost argue that there's like a similar purpose in these two movies, right? Mm-hmm. Like Right, like Mel Gibson is tr- Mel Gibson is trying to show what we did to Jesus, and his stated purpose is 
so that we all know what the role we all play in what we've done to this man right. who yeah. is also God, right? Um, you know, Schindler's List is meant to show, hey, look, this is what humans did to these people. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's that, that, oh. that's, it's how the Shoah Foundation was started is because of that movie. Yeah. So, so people and so, would not forget. Yeah, so, yeah, exactly. So, like, it's this whole, it's the same, one could argue that they're the same, they're same aim, right? Of, I think so, yeah. But one gets a pass and the other doesn't. Right. Yeah. Like I'm not, I'm not, well, someone... it doesn't help because of who made them also, you know, Mel Gibson, not, not super popular at the moment. Well, but you know what, but, but at the time though, right. At the time that was before all this other stuff came out about him. Yeah. Right. And so people were already, you know, like just because he made this movie about Jesus, they already set him up to be right. I mean, like, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not going to be like Alex Jones and talk about globalists and all this kind of stuff. Right. But yeah. right. There's a particular culture in Hollywood that he's dealing with and they are clearly not going to want to make a Jesus movie. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think so. I mean, I, and I, you do have to kind of take into also into account, you know, Schindler's list fairly, you know, having in the 20th century, you know, yeah. it's not mythologized. It's, it, you know, story of Jesus is, it's, is, is a religious text. Um, you know, you can watch a documentary about everything happening in Schindler's List and use actual footage. So, I mean, there's, I guess there's that difference people can, you know, draw a line in the sand. Um, but, no, I think well, you're right. I think they do both kind of are saying the same thing, that, like, humanity is capable of horrible violence. You know, one is saying we do it to ourselves. The other one is saying is that we can do it to the person who's trying to help us. Mm-hmm. You know? Well, and then there's the, I mean, you talk about violence. I think one of the most eye-opening cinematic experiences in terms of violence that I've ever had was that was Django Unchained. That's the first time I noticed it. I've been so accustomed to seeing Tarantino films and the way that Tarantino uses violence mm-hmm. that I saw that he actually uses two types of violence in that movie, right? Tarantino tends to use violence as a very over-the-top, almost comical, right? Like yeah. it's, you know... And it's, it's like it's, sudden, it comes out of nowhere. And it's obviously... Yeah. Right. Like Kill Bill. Right. Girl gets her arm cut off and it's just like a <laughs> fountain of blood spraying out of her arm. Right. And it's right. so fake drawing off of like, you know, old Kung Fu films. But Django Unchained is one of the first movies of his that I've seen where like it was realistic violence coupled with over the top violence. Right. Mm-hmm. Like every time every time Django, every time Django kills a plantation person, like an owner or whatever. Right. It's very like over the top. Right. It's very action movie oriented. You're you don't feel bad for the people getting shot. But, you know, when you watch that scene where the guys they set dogs on that guy or the Mandingo fighting scene, like that's a different kind of violence in that movie. And it's sickening and it is wrong. And, and, And I think that that was really masterful use on um Tarantino's part of his of his technique around filming violence to communicate, you know, the different, the different versions of it. <laughs> kind of a, kind of an aside, but do you remember how like terrified people were when they found out that he was making a movie about Sharon Tate? Yes. And like, everyone was just like, and totally anticipating like, Oh my God, anyone but him, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, what is he going to do? I don't want to watch Sharon Tate get brutally murdered. Like as if like that, that that's what everyone thought was going to happen. Right, and like, have you like have you ever seen one of his movies? Like he would never do that. No, no, it's not. Yeah, it actually Eli Roth probably would, but I think the violence should be there. And I'm going to take a page from Wes Craven from Last House on the Left, and it's like if you if you think it's bad, that's that's good. That means you're a normal person. Like 
Yeah, it's, it's supposed to be. I hate that movie. <laughs> um, so I guess, I mean, that's, I guess that's all, that's all I really have to say about the film. I don't, I can't think of anything else I wanted to cover. Um, except that, uh, I gave it three and a half stars on my letterboxed account. All right. Which is above a gentleman's three. So that's, it's pretty good. That's pretty good. In my book. I just, I, I just, I, I, it just, it's kind of exhausting is I think why I didn't give it the full star. Um, because like I said, you know, it's just very overwhelming and you just kind of like, I, I wanted more subtle, quiet, introspective moments. Um, so that's, that's sort of my, that's my Roger Ebert review. And, you know, I, and it, it'll always be, I don't think I'll never not associate the South Park episode, Passion of the Jew, to this movie. Because, like, the entire time watching this movie, I can't stop thinking about that one episode. Because that, that might be, like, the one episode of South Park I've seen more than any other episode. So, which is, I mean, even they were like, no, it's a snuff film. Like, no, that's a little over the top. Yeah. To call it a snuff film. You know? Yeah, I, no, I, that's, I always felt that way, too. Even though it's a funny episode. Yeah. Um, I guess all I could say is Kabla. Kabla. <laughs> <laughs> I do love, let me just say, I love, one of the things I love about South Park and the way they handle Mel Gibson is that they, they, they talk about how insane he is, but they also acknowledge what a great filmmaker he is. <laughs> yeah. I love that, that, that one where they sort of parodied, they parodied that whole um, thing where Hollywood, you know, like or the government got a bunch of like, after 9-11, they got a bunch of like, they got a bunch of like screenwriters and directors and stuff together to help them anticipate like future terrorist attacks. Yeah. And they do that thing with it and they have all these people in here and they're like, it's like, like Mr. Bay. And he's just like, and then what if it's a, brah, brah, brah. and then it's, <laughs> yeah. then they had, uh, the M. Night Shyamalan. M. Night Shyamalan. he's yeah. like, Oh, you're, but they're actually, the terrorists are actually werewolves or whatever. <laughs> and then they finally have Mel Gibson in and he's of course in his underwear with his brave heart paint on. And, and he's just like, you know, he's just like asking people to hurt him and be and torture him and stuff. But he's also saying like, like, pot, like actual, correct like cinematic stuff. Yeah. And like he's saying, but by God, can he tell a story? <laughs> by God, he knows structure. That's it. By God, he knows structure. Yeah. So good so, movie. Yeah. Uh, I, I recommend it. Go watch uh, Passion of the Christ on uh, Pluto TV. <laughs> and then go uh, go to Olive Garden afterward. Go to Olive friends. Garden. Get you some never-ending salad and some never-ending breadsticks. <laughs> Retreat, it reward yourself. <laughs> what? It is the body of Christ. <laughs> uh, as like I told you in our chat, I still think it'd be great to do like a updated, an updated version of the story of Jesus, where Judas busts in in an Olive Garden restaurant, and that's where Jesus is with his disciples. Oh, God. Here goes flying into never ending salad bowl. I <laughs> love it. <laughs> yeah. Um God, I still I, I still can't get over like I I could think about Zack Snyder's that that scene when he draws into the sand. You know? Yeah. Like just every moment, just by the foot coming down and then drawing in the sand and then all the rocks do 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 and the Monica Bellucci just like falls into the camera and they still got that wailing music. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I get it. You're making a movie. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh man, so indulgent. 
Um, yeah, this like, film also doesn't. It also does that thing where it kind of bugs me that this tradition in the church of conflating Mary Magdalene with the woman caught in adultery in John's gospel, who's an unnamed woman. Oh yeah. Um, and also that's a section of John's gospel that is not in the earliest versions of John's gospel that we have found and is actually shown up in other gospels. So uh, there is a case that has been made by some people to say that we should not ever be like preaching from that passage because it might not actually be part of the Bible or whatever. I don't know. Um, but I think we've canonized the story enough that it's worth keeping, but yeah, it's definitely not Mary Magdalene in the story. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I actually hope they make the sequel um, because I, I would love yeah. to see like the <laughs> Jesus going to hell, like, and just make that the movie. That would be, that would be cool. Dude, you know how upset people would be, especially right now after a little Nas X's video, if they make a movie, it's basically like <laughs> Jesus, like, like, you know, Jason goes to hell. Jesus goes to hell. <laughs> Jesus goes to hell. Great. The third one, Jesus X, he goes to space. Uh, <laughs> it's the ascension. Jesus X, the ascension. <laughs> okay. Well, you got my message, right? You got my message I said earlier that you could actually make a really interesting trilogy by um, watching Aronofsky's Noah, followed by this movie, then followed by Prometheus. Yeah. I think that'd be cool. I mean, I think that in itself is probably a movie you could make. It has to be. Because little known fact, right? That was Ridley Scott's, uh, I, I don't know how many, I mean, our, our audience probably already knows this, but in case you don't, Ridley Scott said that the reason why the engineers created the black goo that formed the xenomorphs from the Alien franchise was to send them back to Earth as revenge for killing Jesus. Love it. I who love apparently it. was an engineer like them, but somehow looked just like like us. I don't know. I love I, I love that stuff, dude. That's so great. Like <laughs> when, when I first saw it, I thought it was so ridiculous. Like, why are you doing this to Alien? Now I'm like, I love it. I love every minute of it. I need to I need to rewatch it. And I'm gonna watch I think I will watch Noah and Prometheus back to back. I think I will. You should and, th- and think of it as like they're all like you know, I mean there's about as much continuity between those three movies as the <laughs> as there is between any of the new MonsterVerse movies. <laughs> um, you know, so... Yeah. Cool. Um, by the way, I just looked it up, and the movie we are going to be watching next week is the 1979 film Jesus. The Jeremy okay. Sisto film was a CBS miniseries that came out in 1999. Oh, it okay. might be worth checking out just to see Jeremy Sisto be Jesus. And, dude, those, t- those TV movies and miniseries in that era when they got biblical like they're well, it's all roman county right it's all like touched by an angel stuff right no, no it's like they just did like bonkers stuff i remember like john voight played noah once and there were like pirates in it lot was a lot lot first of all lots in it <laughs> he's like noah's best friend and then like he Wait, yeah he becomes a pirate and they attack Noah the ark a lot is a pirate and he attacks the ark Oh my gosh. It's insane. They did all kinds of insane stuff like that with, with these. Dude, like... okay. Okay, we need to then like I think I think we have another series. Noah. <laughs> no, 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 no. We should no. just like we should just track down some of these like really bonkers biblical movie adaptations and just talk about them. Yeah. 
I mean, because Noah, Aronofsky's Noah is a fantastic movie. I love it. It's great. It's it has rock monsters in it. It's awesome. It's so good. It's so awesome. The Cocoon Aliens, that that sequence where Noah recounts the story of creation, I always showed that in um, when I taught Bible at my previous school. Yeah. All right. Well, I think that's a good place to end it, Chuck, don't you? I do. I agree. And so next week we're going to watch the Jesus film, which I'm just going to point out here, JP. Yeah. It holds the Guinness Book of World Records as the most translated film in history. It has been translated into 1,803 languages as of April 2020. Um, And the leaders of the Jesus Film Project claim that it has been viewed over 5 billion times by over 3 billion people, making it one of the most watched movies of all time. Hmm. Wow. Let's let's talk about it next week. Let's watch it. I'm sure it's. I'm sure. I'm sure you can find it like on YouTube, right? Like they probably upload that on YouTube now. Like there's no there's no it's reason to, to haul they around. Want right? There's no reason to haul around a 16 millimeter projector anymore in Peru. Everyone's got iPhones over there. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So join us again next week as we watch the Jesus film. Um, please have a wonderful week. Uh, stay off Twitter, and. Um, you know, I f- we forgot to talk about. I really wanted to talk about King Herod in this movie because he just kind of reminded me yeah. of Peter Griffin. Um, and I was just, <laughs> I just had like jokes just like swimming in my head. Like this guy vapes. Like this, I, I, a great, great character actor. I think whoever they got to play him. Um, I actually really like that scene. Uh, just so to help for us, um, if you go to uh, JesusFilm.org. You can watch the movie. Oh, perfect. Love it. It's right. right. You scroll down and it says watch Jesus. Awesome. There you go. There you go. Okay. Chuck, thank you so much for everything. You're welcome for everything. And uh, I want to thank you, the viewer and the listener. Uh, Don't forget to like and subscribe. Leave a comment. Uh, Go watch a Jesus movie. And uh, we'll see you again next week. Have a wonderful week. Good journey. Good journey.